0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, A People's History premieres May 9th, streaming on Hulu. Hey y'all, this is Sam I, Betty. This week on the show, the host of NPR's history podcast, Throughline, Ramtin. team Arablui, and Ronda Abdel Fata. All right,
1: let's start the show. Hey, y'all from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders. It's been a minute. Happy weekend to my listeners and to my guests, the host of NPR's history podcast, Throughline, Rund Abdel Fata and Ramtin Arablui. So glad to have you on the show. Oh, thanks Sam. for having us. Yeah, so y'all are here this week. I am here this week. The whole show pretty much is here this week to honor Pride Month. Yes. June is Pride Month This is the last mm-hmm. week and last weekend of Pride Month So a large portion of today's show Is going to be spent talking about LGBTQ history And some interesting tidbits about gay activism Before Stonewall Yep. But first we're going to talk a bit about This song that we're playing right now It's a gay anthem And the bop I see you right. So okay. many necks shaking. So many necks moving. Dance to it. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a 1978 classic You Make Me Feel Mighty Real by Sylvester. And it is such an iconic gay anthem that earlier this year it was added to the Library of Congress. Huh. Hmm. This is the thing people won't admit. Disco was not bad. <laughs> no. Disco was really fun. Who says it's bad?
2: Oh, some people did back in the
1: day. Yeah, yeah. Some people. Some people. <laughs> Anyway, this song by Sylvester is one of the first real big American radio hits by someone who was actually out of the closet. Uh, Sylvester made music as an openly gay man, often in drag, uh, and he earned the title in the 70s as the Queen of Disco. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Shout out Sylvester, yeah. shout out Disco, shout out Pride Month. Yes. And it goes on for like six minutes too. Oh, like look climate. there's like a synth solo coming, yeah, in. it's yeah, so yeah. good.
2: Oh, that groove could go forever. forever. Endless yeah. groove.
1: Literally, literally. <laughs> yeah. All right, as we mentioned earlier, the hosts of Through Line are kind of taking over for this first segment and they're gonna spend some time to mark Pride Month. Uh, this is a really good week to do it. This week marks the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall protest. This, of course, is the protest in 1969 when gay patrons of the gay bar, the Stonewall Inn in New York City, they chose to fight back against police harassment after the bar was raided yet again. Stonewall and this rebellion lasted for days. It captured everyone's attention. And today, Stonewall is seen as kind of the start of the gay civil rights movement. But Rund and Rampteen... Y'all recently dug into the history of gay activism before Stonewall. It's a whole episode of your show, Throughline, mm-hmm. And basically what you found is that like, it didn't start there. No. No. That's yeah. the
3: short answer. No. <laughs> it did
1: not. Yeah. So anyways, you both have three words today all about the secret hidden history of the gay rights movement. And uh, Rampteen, you get to go first.
2: Okay. So my three words are have a ball.
1: Okay. As we are in the studio right now. All the time. Every day. Uh,
2: (laughs) And it has to do with this amazing story. Uh, Our guest on our episode, Eric Marcus, told us about a 1965 January 1st ball that happened in San Francisco. So Um,
1: 65 is a few years before Stonewall.
2: Yeah, four years before Stonewall. Okay. And this ball in San Francisco, which was to raise funds, basically, um, for an organization called the Council on Religion and the Homosexual. Oh. That's a real organization. <laughs> okay. Uh, it was actually an organization that was put together by some progressive ministers in San Francisco who were advocating for the LGBTQ community in San Francisco. Okay. And so, um, in San Francisco at the time, just dressing as what people considered, quote unquote, the opposite sex uh-huh. was treated like a crime. Police could arrest you and take you in. Mm-hmm. So. The Council on Religion and the Homosexual decide to put on this costume ball on January 1st, 1965. Mm-hmm. And we heard, this is tape that Eric Marcus got years ago interviewing two people, um, two gay attorneys named Evander Smith and Herb Donaldson. Um, they did things like negotiate with the police ahead of time to try to stop them from raiding the party.
1: Really? Yeah. So they so were. these quit. raids happened a lot. They knew that this was a possible threat.
2: Yes. They were the plain clothes police. They would come in. Mm -hmm. I remember there was a fire inspection.
4: That's right. There was a a, a health inspection.
1: So the police tell these gay folks we're we're not going to raid your costume ball but like what happens the night of?
2: So the night of the police basically go back on the word. Huh.
1: All of a sudden there were a whole bunch of police in uniform came in. I, I thought that, you know, when police arrested you, they said you're under arrest. And I just they grabbed me, one on each side, and I said, am I under arrest? I mean, what a silly question. Am I under arrest? They were hauling, and they'd already hauled you out to yes. the paddy wagon.
4: <laughs> and then they put us in jail. They sure as to hell did.
2: So it got ugly. And it was a major event. The San Francisco Chronicle even ran the names of people who were arrested that night basically outing a lot of people.
1: Wow. And so we should clarify, you mentioned Eric Marcus. He actually collected these stories that we're hearing right now.
3: Yeah. Um, he actually collected the tapes um, for a, a book he was writing back in the 80s. And oh, we wow. visited them, you know, in the past few years and to make his podcast, Making Gay History. So we have him to thank for all this tape.
1: Yeah. So this event is not so well remembered, but it seems like it had some kind of impact. What was the impact of this costume ball and this raid?
2: Well, the community didn't just give in to this. You know, yeah. They responded and it eventually led to uh, a court case that mm-hmm. then eventually led to some real changes in the laws in San Francisco. So this was the beginning of kind of a movement, at least in San Francisco, of seeing kind of real change happen for the LGBTQ community there. Yeah. But then for a lot of the people, including Herb and Evander, there was ramifications for them specifically. How so? Um, so Herb actually went on to become a judge, one of the first openly gay judges in the United States, so he had a kind of a good outcome. But for someone like Evander, uh, it didn't work out so well. Um, He was fired from his job as an attorney, and he lost a lot in the process. That arrest has affected me materially. It exacerbated my feeling of insecurity and being less worthy than I think people should be able to be.
1: So, I mean, it seems like just hearing you talk about this event years before Stonewall, like what stands out to me is this idea of things that we take for granted now. Back then, they were sacrifice. Going to a bar, socializing with LGBT folks, mm-hmm. dressing in, in clothes that weren't assigned to your sex. Those small things were sacrifice. Right, Ron?
3: Absolutely. And actually, that brings us to my three words. Okay. Uh, walk the line. -aha. Uh-huh. So... Uh, Is that a Johnny Cash song?
1: It is, I did not mean to crib it off Johnny Cash. But that said, don't let these folks out here know that you don't know the whole Johnny Cash discography, because you might get a letter or two. Anyways, as you were.
3: Okay, so one of the other examples we came across, um, also from 1965, is a photo. It's showing a protest happening outside the White House. And... The men are all dressed in suits and ties, the women are in skirts and heels, and they're holding up signs with things like, denial of equality of opportunity is immoral.
1: So this is also 1965, four years before Stonewall.
3: Uh, Yeah, exactly. It wasn't a huge march, Uh um, but it was, you know, a couple dozen people or so. Yeah, But it was a call for equality for gay and lesbian Americans. And one of the people in this photo who really stood out to us Mm -hmm. um, was a woman named Ernestine Eckstein. And the reason she stood out is because she's the only non-white person in the crowd. So Eric had a lot of trouble tracking her down because that's a pseudonym. Um, Yeah, a lot of gay people at the time used pseudonyms to protect themselves because, again, there were repercussions if you were out publicly. But he did come across some archival tape and interview with her Hmm. um, from around that time.
0: I personally consider myself very average and normal in every sense of the word, not radical. This, to me, is the way to be. Now, I think compared to other lesbians, my ideas are farther to the
3: left. And... She really pushed the movement to and encouraged them to learn a thing or two from the civil rights movement, which she was huh. also a part of. Huh. And she said, you know what, it's not enough to just picket.
0: Picketing, I, I regard as very, almost a conservative activity now. Uh, I, I mean, one thing I would like to see is um, a kind of respect for self-development among all homosexuals so that they can date in public for instance you know openly mm-hmm.
4: but do you think it's it's possible in the in the present climate of opinion for homosexuals who have self-confidence in themselves to do this openly
0: i think it takes a lot of
1: courage hmm. it's so interesting hearing her say that you know in tape from the 60s there are there's data in studies that show that like upwards of like half of all queer people are still afraid to be out at work Mm -hmm. uh there's a large portion of gay people who are still a little afraid about where they can hold hands with their partners Mm -hmm. so some of the stuff that she's talking about was talking about it still hasn't been fully realized
3: yeah i mean she was a trailblazer for sure and um especially because she was up against a lot right mm-hmm. from from broader American culture but also even within the movement because again she was trying to push the movement in sort of a more radical direction and eventually she she grew kind of frustrated with the gay rights movement and, and sort of she didn't think it was evolving fast enough hmm. um, and that it wasn't quite as inclusive as it maybe could be. And so she redirected her attention to black feminist issues um, for most of the rest of her life. Um, But she's still seen as sort of this pioneer in the gay rights movement, because as you said, I mean, to this day, a lot of the things that she was talking about in the 1960s haven't Haven't even been been realized. Yeah.
1: You know, hearing you both talk about these kind of secret hidden histories in the gay rights movement it reminds me of like some of the mythology that we place around other things. Like I was thinking about Steve Jobs and Apple and the iPhone. And there is this public myth that Steve Jobs did all this on his own, that Mm -hmm. he made the iPhone, that he was a visionary. But in actuality, a lot of people over the course of many years and a lot of different ideas coming together helps make that, right? right? And so there's no way that just one stone wall could encompass the entirety, or even just the beginning of the gay rights movement. Yeah, and you know, history is complicated, and mm-hmm. often we need a neat story. We
2: need a like a neat way to kind of understand what's happened in the past. And mm-hmm. it depends on who's telling that story, and from you know what perspective they're coming. But what's really great about I think the way history is being told today, from so many different angles, is we're getting a little bit more of a complicated uh, narrative. Which is yeah. something that Eric provided with all this great tape he collected is that the
1: narrative is way more complicated than we want to believe. Yeah. Speaking of complicated narratives, mm-hmm. even this weekend for Pride here in New York, you know, there's this narrative of a Pride parade. Mm. There's three happening this weekend. Oh, really? Mm. There's yeah. the main Pride parade, with the big corporate sponsors. There's the anti-corporate pride parade hmm. with no corporate influence then there's the lesbian pride parade mm-hmm. same
3: thing happened with the the women's marches right i huh. mean there was sort of a splintering we saw that back earlier oh, this yeah. year right Where yeah no movement is one thing ever you exactly
1: know? speaking of one thing i want everyone to check out one thing this weekend and that is y'all's episode <laughs> of through line all about the secret hidden history pre-stonewall how can folks find that
3: uh, wherever you listen to podcasts. Okay, I'm sorry I set you
1: up for that. <laughs> wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, I know. <laughs> check out Throughline. Check out Making Gay History. Also keep checking out this show. Coming up, we're going to talk student loans with a real live student loan attorney. She tells us what we all get wrong when we talk about student loan debt. Turns out, it's a lot. I'm Sam Sanders. You're
0: listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. We'll be right back. This message comes from NPR sponsor Capital One. With the Capital One Saver card, you can earn 4% cash back on dining and entertainment. That means 4% on checking out that new French restaurant and 4% on bowling with your friends. You'll also earn 2% cash back at grocery stores and 1% on all other purchases. Now when you go out, you cash in. Capital One. What's in your wallet? Terms apply.
4: Support also comes from WNET with Amanpour & Company. Featuring conversations with today's headline makers and tomorrow's change makers, the show brings you in-depth conversations with global thought leaders and cultural influencers on the issues and trends impacting the world each day. Visit pbs.org slash to go beyond the headlines. Weekdays at 11 p.m. on PBS or stream segments at pbs.org slash Check local listings
3: this week marks the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Uprising, a turning point in the movement for LGBTQ rights. So in this week's episode of the StoryCorps podcast from NPR, we'll revisit the very first documentary our founder, Dave Isay, made back in 1989, called Remembering Stonewall. Listen and subscribe now.
1: We are back. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. I'm Sam Sanders here with two guests, Ron Abdul-Fatah and Ramtin Arablouei. They are the host of NPR's history podcast, Throughline. Can I ask you both a very strange question? Yes. Yeah. Okay. How much or how often do you think about where and how you store your toilet paper?
3: I, I think about Sometimes. it. Sometimes pretty often
1: wait what <laughs>
3: <laughs> but only lately because I bought a new brand of toilet paper and it you know how people say like it doesn't matter if you buy the expensive kind or it the doesn't cheap kind? It does because you get the thi- <laughs> you get the thinner toilet paper,
1: yeah, and you have to
3: use more, and it doesn't feel satisfying. I'm telling you, it doesn't. So I'm waiting for my toilet supply to run out so I can buy the the better. How old are you? I'm 28.
1: Okay, so you are a millennial. Yes, as are you. But yes, I am too. Yeah. Okay, we all are. Yeah. So I bring up toilet paper and how you store it because Procter and Gamble has come up with a new idea to help millennials deal with toilet paper anxiety.
3: <laughs> Tell me more.
1: <laughs> they're calling this the Charmin Forever Roll. And it's designed for millennials who live in tiny apartments with no space to store their extra toilet paper. Mm. So they're selling you this what they call a forever roll that is like defined by Charmin as a one-month, possibly two-month supply of toilet paper. Oh, yeah. I have a picture of it, actually, this gigantic TP roll.
3: That's huge. No, that would not <laughs> be
1: in my Wait, show it to show it to Romte over there. That looks Ram like team.
3: an industrial like in a literally a public bathroom. You know, those That's like insane. big like what? yeah.
2: That looks like Mad Photoshop.
1: <laughs> oh my goodness. Anyway, speaking of the ways millennials spend their money, I want us to pivot real hard now and uh, talk <laughs> about student loans.
5: <laughs> Good pivot. <laughs>
1: Good pivot. Uh, this is for a segment that we call long distance. <laughs> where we call up someone around the country and talk about how the news is affecting them. I know that you both are aware we are inching closer and closer to election 2020. Mm-hmm. There were mm-hmm. two debates this week. We're not going to say a word about those, okay, <laughs> before you <we> even start. <laughs> but I am going to say that the candidates are beginning piece by piece to roll out their policy plans. And ahead of this week's debates, too crazy, <laughs> uh, Bernie Sanders proposed getting rid of all tuition at public colleges and canceling all Americans outstanding student loan debt.
3: We got
2: millions and millions of families in this country who are struggling with outrageous levels of student debt. And maybe instead of just worrying about Wall Street, we start worrying about those families and that generation
1: and give them a break. Senator Elizabeth Warren has been talking about loans as well.
5: Go to ElizabethWarren.com slash debt. And then it tells you how much student loan debt forgiveness
4: is in our plan.
1: So we're in this moment now where there is student loan debt conversation happening. But beneath that top layer of conversation, there are a lot of misconceptions out there about this very topic. So we called up Rebecca Moore. She's a student loan lawyer based in Cleveland, Ohio, and she helps people figure out how to deal with their crazy debt when it becomes too crazy. And she told me that the reality of student debt is kind of different than the narrative that surrounds it. And she has some advice for those of us dealing with debt as well. Rebecca, hey, how are you? Hey, pretty good. So first things first, you are a student loan lawyer. Yep. You're working with a lot of folks that are dealing with student loan drama. What is the like typical profile of folks across the country who are in student loan distress?
5: I think that something people don't appreciate if they don't themselves have student loans or they're not affected by this crisis is just the psychological weight of it, that people walk into my office and – they, yeah, they have this debt burden, but it's like this psychological burden that's sitting mm. on them. And what's so frustrating for borrowers is that it can be any amount. You can have mm. six figures of debt, and it can be wreaking the same amount of havoc on your credit and your livelihood as $3,000. Wow. And in fact, more than half of the student loan defaults in the entire country are on loan amounts of less than $10,000. Huh.
1: Well, I mean, hearing you talk about who it is that's affected by this, it seems the narrative around people with student loan debt and out of control student loan debt is entirely out of touch with the reality. Like, you know, I read all these articles where there's this blaming of like the privileged English major from some expensive uh, liberal arts college and they're like the face of loan debt. But in actuality, it's like not that.
5: Not at all. Um, huh. The person who, you know, that six figures to go get their third master's degree <laughs> at Harvard, like yeah. that is not the problem. The The problem is low income folks who were enticed to go to these for profit schools mm. that really could not deliver on the education they promised. Um, mm. And this really intersects with all the issues of racial and gender disparities that we see <laughs> across the country. Um what we know is that two-thirds of student loan debt is held by women. Really? Um, yep. And uh, women and people of color are more likely to owe more when they leave school and they're more likely to go into defaults. And you, that's directly tied to all the economic disparities that put less money and give fewer economic opportunities to those people.
1: Yeah. So when you counsel folks that come to you in student loan distress – what are you usually telling them to do or helping them do?
5: Yeah. So the number one thing people ask me is, can you make my loans go away? <laughs> um, <laughs> And for the most part, I don't have magic wand. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the counseling I do is helping people understand among the dizzying array of options for repayment on student loans, what actually makes sense for them. And Mm -hmm. if you don't have student loans, you haven't dealt with this system. What people don't know is there's dozens of different types of federal loans, and there are multiple different repayment plans for each particular type of loan. So Mm -hmm. You can be really overwhelming to figure out what to do. And my goal is you walk into my office and we lay out and figure out the best plan. And then you leave my office, you put that plan into place, and you move on with your life.
1: Yeah. What is the biggest mistake students are making, families are making as they enter into the college student loan process?
5: Oh, there's so many mistakes. (laughs) (laughs)
4: Yeah,
5: <laughs> yeah. Um, so one that I will I just really want to flag is mm-hmm. um, these Parent PLUS loans. These are mm. loans where after your kid has maxed out the amount that they can take under the traditional federal student loan system, uh, the parent is able to make up the difference with a federal student loan that is taken out only in the parent's name, not in the kid's name. Oh, yeah. And it's these are called
1: nice – mom and dad.
5: Yes, very, very nice for mom and dad to do. My parents um, would
1: never. <laughs>
5: <laughs> well, what's shocking is I talk all the time with parents who didn't quite realize they were doing this. They thought they were co-signing with their kid, or what they said was, "My kid's a good kid, and he's gonna. This is gonna be his responsibility. That's mm. the arrangement that we've thought of." LOL. Um, <laughs> The problem is that then, you know, five, ten years down the line, your kid's not doing that well. And guess whose name that loan is in? Mm -hmm. It's in the parent's name. And what we're seeing is this generation of older borrowers kind of getting swept up into it as older adults um, on behalf of their kids. So we're seeing default rates for people who are 60 plus uh, skyrocket
1: every year. Do you see a lot of parents who as they helicopter their kids are kind of like, don't worry about it. We'll do your FAFSA. We'll fill out the forms. We'll do this. And then like that ends up hurting their kids.
5: (laughs) Yeah, I actually have a rule in my practice because a lot of parents reach out to me and say, oh, my my kid's about to graduate or they just graduated and I'm, I'm stressed about their student loans for them. Can I do a consult with you to figure it out? And I don't work with the parent if it's the (laughs) child's finances. So um, I've uh, learned the hard way that that's a pretty hard and fast rule for me. Um, no, No helicopter parents who are doing the consult on behalf of their kids.
1: You know, hearing you talk about that, there's probably a better way for parents and their children to handle this process from the start. It seems as if Maybe for whatever reason, the way these conversations happen, parents and kids or they just don't know what they're getting into.
5: Oh, yeah. I mean, we're basically giving 18-year-olds um, a – we're letting them take out as much money as it would cost, I mean, easily to get a car, sometimes to get a house. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of states, you can't even legally sign a contract, uh, yeah. you know, if you're 16 or 17. Then magically you turn 18 and we've decided now you are you can be responsible for $40,000 of debt per year. Oh, yeah,
1: and you can't even uh, drink. You, like You have to wait until <laughs> you're 21 to drink, but you're 18 and you can sign your life away.
5: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, I don't put a ton of the blame for this on any one individual. I mean, obviously, we could all make better choices. I left law school with six figures of debt, and I was sort of educating myself along that route. But really, we've created this system where um, we've basically told people, okay, education, that your ticket to the American Mm -hmm. dream is an education. Mm -hmm. And the cost for that ticket is this piece of paper. And uh, it You know, this is what you're going to owe for it. And that's why I think we've seen so much interest in the 2020 presidential candidates of talking about solutions for student loans because this system is just not tenable. Um, There's just not better options for folks out there.
1: So then, all right, to wrap it all up, what is the one thing everyone should avoid that they all can fix, like the one pitfall they all are trapped by that our listeners should hear and avoid?
3: Yeah,
5: I'm going to tell you to avoid avoiding them. Um, uh, (laughs) Open those envelopes, log into your servicer, uh, figure it out because uh, there is nothing harder than someone coming in after they've ended up in default, after their wages are being garnished, after their credit's been affected. There are yearly and annual recertifications for those income-based plans. Turn those in on time because you will get kicked out of that program and you will find yourself with sticker shock at what you have to pay to get back in and just pay attention to them. Man, that will help you out a lot.
1: Yeah. And also just like check your mail. Like I don't (laughs) seriously, I don't like checking my mail. I don't check it that much. And um, true story, many years ago when I just finished graduate school, uh, I was about to go into student loan default because I wasn't getting the bill. And I just forgot to pay it.
5: Also, U.S. Postal Service, like one of our national treasures. So, you know, maybe respect them.
1: (laughs) Respect them. (laughs) Respect them so much. Hey, well, thank you for the good work that you're doing, Rebecca. And thank you for talking with me and for helping inform our listeners about this serious, serious issue.
5: Yeah, this was awesome.
1: All right. Take care. Bye. Bye. Thanks again to Rebecca Moore, She's a student loan lawyer based in Cleveland, Ohio. Hearing that call, um, don't get too personal, but is student loan debt a thing that you or your family and friends are dealing with?
3: Well, <clears throat> when you marry someone, you... Mm-hmm. you-
1: this is something I debt. didn't realize. You marry their debt. <laughs> Did you marry some debt recently? I married some
3: debt. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but it's a good debt, debt, right? It's, it's like a professional debt.
3: Yeah. It's, it's good because <laughs> he's fulfilling his dreams and all that good stuff. Um, but it's a lot of debt, so it is something that I find know, talk that
1: about. when you bring up things like debts and money stuff, people get really ashamed of talking about it. Like, is he comfortable discussing this? Are you comfortable discussing it? Like, part of the crisis is that we don't talk about it enough, too, right?
3: Yeah, he might not like that I brought it up.
1: <laughs> yeah, I was like, uh... We won't name him.
3: <laughs> no one will be able to track him down. Um, yeah, I, I I, think that's definitely true. Yeah. I mean, bringing up bringing up money, period, can yeah. be very, um, you know, uncomfortable for well, a lot of people.
1: We luckily brought up not just money, but toilet paper in the last <laughs> few minutes. We're on a roll. <laughs> There's also,
2: like, a large swath of this country who's never even gone to college. Oh, yeah. And I wonder, like, it just makes me wonder what that part of the country's thinking when they see this debate.
1: mm because Are they like shut up? <laughs>
3: <Yeah>. <laughs> Deal right, with like, it. We, we made this calculation. Yeah,
2: yeah. Like you know, we decided to not take on the decks because we didn't go to college, or we someone couldn't go to college at all. Like it wasn't even an option mm-hmm. for them. So I'm really wondering, not to get into the election, but I'm wondering moving forward how that's going to play out in the election because there's going to be a significant part of the country mm-hmm. that votes that's going to, I don't know, maybe be a little offended by this conversation at all oh, wow. or something. Yeah. I don't know if offended is yeah. the right word, but wonder like
1: you know. No, it makes sense. Yeah, it makes point. sense podcast listeners, we will have an episode all about this very issue in the coming weeks. We talk about millennials and money and family and debt. Stay tuned for that. All right, it's time for a break. When we come back, my favorite game, who said that? BRB.
4: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Proven Winners Color Choice Shrubs, offering flowering shrubs and evergreens trialed and tested by expert horticulturists for 8 to 10 years to ensure a beautiful, high-performance display in the landscape or garden. All it takes is a bit of TLC to transform a dull yard into one that's full of color, texture, and life. Available in the distinctive white containers at garden centers nationwide. Or discover the possibilities at provenwinnerscolorchoice.com slash NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor KeyBank. At KeyBank, they believe in delivering for their clients. Whatever the economic turn, KeyBank is primed to collaborate and help create solutions tailored to your ideas and your vision. With nearly 200 years of banking experience, they know a lot about being a trusted advisor. And whether you're managing growth, seeking solutions, or improving your bottom line, KeyBank is ready to be yours. KeyBank opens doors. Learn more at key.com advisor. Hey, it's Peter Sagel, So you're listening to this NPR podcast because you want to be informed. You want to learn something. But what if you need a little break? Well, then you want to check out Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, the NPR news quiz. It's the show that lets your lizard brain enjoy itself for once. You can be serious again later. Listen to Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: You're listening to "It's Been a Minute" from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. My guests are abdul Abdulfatah and Ramtin Arablouei. They are the host of NPR's history podcast, Throughline. Uh, it's time for my
4: <laughs>
1: favorite game. Who said that?
4: Ooh, M-A, M-A. Who said that? Who
1: Neither of that? you have played before. Nope. Did you study Ooh, up? I tried. Uh, yeah, I
3: heard some. Everyone always says,
1: this, "How can you study play. for a game yeah, about whatever?" I follow you on Twitter. Yeah, that, that
3: was literally <laughs> you know, yeah. what I did
1: too. <laughs> well, luck- lucky for you, I lost my iPhone and have been locked I out of Twitter that. for a good two or three days, so no yeah. hints from my feed this week. Yeah. Yeah? Okay. This game is very simple. I share a quote from the week. You tell me who said it or guess the story that I'm talking about. Per usual, the winner gets absolutely nothing.
3: <laughs> oh, wait. Am I competing against team?
1: Yes, ma'am. Oh, oh. <laughs> That's how it works. the winner gets something.
3: That's how it works.
1: This is a bragging. I'm taking right. you down. Yeah. Oh my! Oh my! Bring it. So this first one is a fill in the blank. Okay? okay. Blank has become a staple of pop culture and is a rare gem whose relevance continues to grow at a time when fans have more entertainment choices than ever before. YouTube. Close. Spotify. Streaming, but streaming, streaming TV. Netflix. Okay, what is the most popular show on Netflix?
3: What is the most popular it's
1: show? It's reruns, all reruns. The Office? Friends. Yes. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so The Office is in the news this week. Uh, that quote came from Bonnie Hammer. She's the chair of NBC Universal's Digital Enterprise. And she was announcing this week that NBC is taking The Office back. Back from Netflix in January of 2021. I did hear about because this because they're going to put The Office on the soon-to-come uh, NBC streaming service. Wow. Why does
3: everyone need a streaming service?
1: Streaming wars. It's the it's the, there's a
3: it's, isn't Disney also off of Netflix? Disney's soon? doing yeah. one. Yeah.
1: NBC is doing one. But the thing is, um, all of these platforms are going to take shows that used to just live on Netflix back into or into for the first time into their streaming platforms. Mm. And this could really hurt Netflix because right now, or at least as of 2018, eight of the 10 most popular shows on Netflix aren't Netflix shows. Wow. Uh It's reruns of shows like The Office and Friends and Grey's Anatomy. There are only two original shows from Netflix that are in their top 10 and that is Orange is the New Black and Ozark. I'm sure it was Friends.
3: Did you ever watch Friends? I don't know. That's nah. I never watched They
1: weren't friends. my friends. No. <laughs> I don't know. I couldn't. I'm, sorry. I I know. It. I'm like,
2: who are these people?
3: <laughs> also, also, why also, is the apartment so big?
1: Yeah. Also, I don't like friend groups where they all sleep with each other. That's not friendship. That's nasty. <laughs> That's nasty. <laughs> all right. Next quote. Ready? Among 270 million players, we have between two and three contacts a month from people concerned about having spent too much money or time on the game. What is this game? Jeopardy? It's a it's a smartphone <laughs> game. Yeah, no.
3: Uh, Candy Crush.
1: Oh, you're on a roll.
3: (laughs) What? My dad plays it all the time.
1: (laughs) How often does he play it? Candy Crush. All the time. How many hours a day?
3: God, I mean, I don't know. Anytime he's like idly sitting there, he's playing Candy Crush.
1: So Candy Crush is in the news this week because lawmakers over in the UK brought Candy Crush executives to testify about gaming addiction to games like Candy Crush. Wow! What? Yeah. So that quote was from Alex Dale. He's a senior executive at Kane. This is a company that makes Candy Crush Saga. So Dale said the average user plays Candy Crush for about 38 minutes a day, but some go way overboard. There was one player who spent $2,600 on the game in one day. Uh, what? And recently, Candy Crush executives admitted that more than 9 million players a day spend between three and six hours a day playing Candy Crush. <laughs>
3: oh, my God.
1: So what is y'all's smartphone game addiction? Mine's Connect 4. Call me basic. Hmm. I just like to play Connect 4 on my phone all the time. I had a serious words with friends addiction years uh, back. Here's the thing, though. Good after game. a certain amount of time, they stop being your friends because it yeah, gets serious. It gets <laughs> real serious. It's real serious. <laughs> what is yours?
2: Uh,
3: okay, this is going to sound dumb, but you know that there's this game called Train of Thought? Show me. It's like a... It's. To improve mind agility,
1: Oh, it's like logic games.
3: Well, you just have to pay attention. Ain't nobody got time so for that. So focuses your attention. <laughs> no. you got to uh-uh, get the uh-uh, trains uh-uh, in uh-uh, the right. Uh-uh. That's color. work.
1: <laughs> They're playing. That's work. Um, rund, in spite of your bad choice in games, you're up two to zip in this game. <laughs> Last quote. You ready? Oh, come on! I got it. The quote is, "I just woke up alone in plane."
3: That girl. That woman. That woman. Give me some more detail. On the plane. Canada.
1: Yes. <laughs>
2: yeah. <laughs> what the? F- <laughs> this was a clean sweep. I, I, I wasn't even competitive. <laughs> <laughs>
3: this yeah, clean, this, is like the, this is like the
2: Warriors <laughs> usually playing. I'm sorry. In the I'm, wow. I love
3: trash talking, wow. but I'm going to wow. resist. I'm going to
1: resist. Goodness. This
2: is, this is going to be immortalized, too. I'm never going to live <laughs> this one down. Wow. So this was a
1: quote. Uh, this is a text that uh, an airplane passenger named Tiffany O'Brien sent to a friend earlier this month. After she fell asleep on a June 9th flight to Toronto and was then forgotten and left in an empty, dark, locked plane. Oh
3: my God. Yeah. That my story gives, gives me anxiety.
2: Yeah. What, so she was, like, sitting on a tarmac, like, like parked? It,
1: here's the thing. It was parked, but then they moved it to, like, the airplane parking lot. <laughs> oh, my So she was, like, totally abandoned. <laughs> she told CTV News in an interview, oh I God. thought, this is a nightmare. This is not happening. I'm having a bad dream. Wake up, Tiffany.
3: Can I just say, a few weeks ago, uh-huh. I was coming back on Amtrak, Uh-huh. and I had my headphones Did you on. You end up in
1: Boston. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Thank God, the last stop was New York, so okay. it's okay. Okay. But I, I, I'm, I had my headphones on. They were pretty, you know, blasting pretty loud. I'm uh-huh. like knocked out. Yeah. And I wake up, and I we've been sitting there for 20 minutes. Like no conductors, nobody's on the platform. Wow. It is kind of scary. It right? feels like post-apocalyptic. Where
1: can you sleep these days? Oh my goodness. <laughs> so, anyways. It, it was so bad for Tiffany, uh, she was on the dark plane, trying to figure it out. She ended up going to the cockpit and breaking in to get a flashlight. And then she was sending SOS signals by waving <laughs> the flashlight out of the plane door. Because when she finally opened the plane door, she realized they had taken away all of the gear that you used to walk down. So right. she would have had to jump off of the plane, it's which high. is like 50 feet high. Oh my God. So she ends up waving the flashlight, and then at one point poking her legs out and <laughs> waving her legs, hoping that someone sees her. That's a <gasps> nightmare. That's it's a nightmare. Really, is a it's nightmare. A nightmare. Anyway, crazy. what's not a nightmare uh, was your performance, <laughs> Oh, thank you. <laughs> you I won.
3: <laughs> and I, you said I don't win anything.
1: No, you that's don't. cool. That's bragging cool. rights.
3: Yeah, bragging rights are. Yeah, that's,
1: yeah, that's great. Ramteen you're still a. winner in other things i guess
3: (laughs) (laughs) you are you are
1: now it's time to end the show as we always do each week we ask our listeners to share with us the best things that have happened to them all week we encourage folks to brag y'all do brent hit the tape
3: hey sam this is serena and hannah right now we are on the sun deck of our cruise ship currently docked in skagway alaska
5: And the best part of our week has been celebrating the summer solstice. Today, there is nearly 22 hours of daylight. We love your show. Keep up the great
3: work and happy solstice. Hey, Sam. This is Bree from Baltimore. The best thing that happened to me this week was enjoying a meal that I made for myself on the grill, sitting outside on my deck and enjoying the beautiful weather. The best part of my week was graduating with my master's degree in dance at UC Irvine. The best part of my week was finding out that I passed the exam to become a certified association executive. The best thing that happened to
5: me this week was my coworkers beautifully helping me celebrate my birthday while I was away from all of my friends and family doing field research in Udaipur, India.
0: Hi, Sam. This is Adam from Reno, Nevada. The best thing that happened to me this week is that my four-month-old puppy, after weeks of feeling unwell, finally started feeling better. And he and I both got six glorious hours of uninterrupted sleep.
3: Hi Sam, this is Molly Meeker from Staten Island, New York, and last week as I was walking home from work, I met an older lady in my neighborhood, her name is Joyce, and I helped her get her walker down um, this hill to her house, Uh, and the best part of my week this week was I got off the bus uh, by this little convenience store in our neighborhood, and... Miss Joyce was in the convenience store and I waved at her frantically and smiled and she smiled back at me like we were already old friends and I got to walk her home again. Thanks Sam. Thanks for the show. Thanks Sam and take care y'all.
1: That was really sweet. That was really sweet. Thanks to all the folks you heard there. Serena and Hannah, I hope y'all are enjoying Alaska. Send photos. Uh, Thanks to Bree and Brandy and Adrian and Natalie. Happy birthday, Natalie. Uh, And thanks to Adam. Send photos of your puppy. And thanks to Molly, of course, as well. Uh, Thanks to everyone, every listener who shares their best things with us every week. We hear them all. We can't play them all, but we hear them all, so keep them coming. Um, Best part of y'all's week, go. Earlier this week, my three-year-old
2: son got up in the middle of the night went to the bathroom like a a grown adult Mm -hmm. it was an achievement (laughs) I I, I was like happy for days did he make the goal (laughs) oh he made the goal okay he made the goal (laughs) he washed his hands it was incredible
1: I love it what about you
3: best part of my week oh Sunday Uh afternoon Uh I spent the whole day in Central Park Oh, nice. Um With my husband and some friends, and we played Settlers of Catan <laughs> in the park, <laughs> and it was great. I
1: love it. It was really I love fun. it. I lost my iPhone for a few days this week. I still don't have it back, but that meant that I had to travel across the country without a phone, and for the first time in forever, I watched two movies on the cross-country flight without my phone in my hand distracting me, and I enjoyed these movies so much.
3: Which movies?
1: I watched Melissa McCarthy's Spy.
3: Okay. (laughs)
1: And the Anna Kendrick film Table 19.
3: I've seen that. Isn't it good? It's so cute. It's so cute.
1: (laughs) But like, there was no second screen to distract me, and it was really great. Anywho, let's go out with another best part of my week. This song by Sylvester. It is called You Make Me Feel Mighty Real, added to the Library of Congress earlier this year. And we're playing it this week in honor of Pride Month because this is... For sure. One of the best gay anthems of all time.
3: It's really catchy. It just moves you. It grooves you.
1: All right. Many thanks to all the folks that help make this show every week. This week, It's Been a Minute was produced by Brent Bachman and Anjali Sastry. Our editors, our fearless editors, are Janana Hochman and Alex McCall. Steve Nelson is our director of programming. He also drinks Diet Mountain Dew. And our big boss NPR's senior VP of programming is Anya Grundman. All right, listeners, till next time. Thanks for listening. I'm Sam Sanders. Talk soon.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, VCU Massey Comprehensive Cancer Center, who, as an NCI-designated Comprehensive Cancer Center in the country's top 4%, is unconditionally committed to keeping loved ones in their lives. MasseyCancerCenter.org slash comprehensive.
4: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com slash switch. All that sitting and swiping, your body is adapting to your technology. Learn how and what you can do about it. I really felt like the cloud in my brain kind of dissipated. Once I started realizing what a difference these little bricks were making, there's no turning back for me.